Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio and every U.S. military base in the world, on your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. Between 1913, Robert Reich writes, and 1928, which is when the, the great crash happened in 29, the next year. Between 1913 and 1928, the ratio of personal debt to the total national economy nearly doubled. And that's what's happening right now. You've got 80% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, and household debt is at an all-time high, $13 trillion dollars. And so what do you do? I, I think the answer is fairly simple and fairly straightforward. We need to repeal the Trump tax cuts, repeal the Bush tax cuts, and repeal the Reagan tax cuts. And take us back to a tax policy, both personal and corporate, that we had from, from the 1940s until the 1980s that produced four decades of the strongest economic growth in the history of our nation, averaging 3% GDP growth every year over each one of those decades. There were variations from year to year, of course, but, but and if we, if we simply did that, if we just repealed those tax cuts so that the wealthy were once again paying their fair share of the economy and restore the inheritance tax to something reasonable and rational so that we don't have these dynastic families like the Waltons and the Kochs that are, you know, I mean, way richer than the Rockefellers ever dreamed of being. We have dynastic families now that rival the kingdoms of ancient Europe in terms of their wealth relative to their subjects, relative to the people who work for them or who, who live in the United States. And that's just plain old flat out wrong. Anyhow, let's pick up some of your phone calls. Genevieve in Seattle, Washington. Hey, Genevieve, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to KBCS. Thank you very much for everything, and a big shout-out for KBCS here in Seattle. Yeah, um, they do a great job. I'm behind Reich and yourself and, and your thoughts, but um, I think that economic troubles are an opportunity for a paradigm shift from our growth-oriented economy. Yes, it's too bad that most of us can't buy the second TV or second car or the doodad that we don't really need. And I'm not blaming the little guy, 
but the facts are that the little guy actually spends his money. And so let's take this as an opportunity in terms of our existential climate crisis to address buying of things as a measure of a healthy economy and bring Robert Reich and our climate issues together in a discussion that addresses both. Well, this is where the green jobs infrastructure stuff it fits right into the frame that you're using here, Genevieve, and that is that if we were all putting solar panels on our houses and producing our own electricity and doing that with some of our own money and some of the federal government's money, it would be a massive stimulus. I mean, you know, all these jobs that would be created manufacturing the solar panels, installing the solar panels, maintaining them, you know, all that kind of thing. It would get us off a carbon economy. It would strengthen our economy. I mean, we don't have to buy stuff we don't need. And, and I get the whole, you know, the danger of consumerism and, and the value of voluntary simplicity and how basically consumerism is a trap, an emotional, psychological, lifestyle trap in, in many ways uh, that I'm not a big fan of. But that said, there are really good ways that people could be spending money if they had it and that would be, you know, saving them money in the long term, weatherizing their houses things like this that people just, you know, are not doing and can't afford to do. What do you think? Um, I think you're absolutely right. And I just wanted you to bring it into the discussion today because it is an opportunity for most people to remember that a slow economy doesn't have to be a lousy economy, that we can reroute our focus toward, you know, those practical things as simply weatherizing a house, which would make everyone richer in the end um, and breathing better air. So I just didn't want to miss this opportunity to bring Reich and the climate together. Yeah, no, and you did. I, I say Beto and Bernie all the way. Yeah. Until okay. I think of something better. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Genevieve. Bye. Yeah, good talking with you. This is a big issue. I mean, you know, especially as Black Friday is upon us, the orgy of consumerism is about to begin. On the one hand, we don't want to get caught up in that and just trapped in that cycle of, oh, I've always got to buy more stuff and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, on the other hand, there are things that we could be buying, we could be investing in, like solarizing our houses and winterizing our houses, for example, um, that or buying more fuel-efficient cars and plug-in vehicles and things like that, that, that actually will not only help the economy, but it help the world. We'll be right back. Nicholas in Chicago. Hey, Nicholas, what's on your mind today? Uh, yes, Professor Harvin, thanks for taking my call. Uh, you know, I just wanted to throw out real quick. I, I believe that this uh, wealth hoarding is a pathology, and if there were studies done, it would show that it's an illness. And then, you know, what we need to do is is not help facilitate that illness by not allowing, you know, that kind of wealth. And you know, and, I agree. I've, I've uh, said many times. I think like yours. I think it's hoarding syndrome. I think you know, if 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 uh, the Koch brothers were born poor, if they weren't, you know, if their daddy wasn't a millionaire to begin with. Um, they'd probably live in an apartment in New York City with a newspaper stacked to the ceiling and, and empty cat food cans all over. I mean, it's, it's hoarding syndrome, which is a form of obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a definable, it's in the DSM-4, it's a definable mental illness. But back to you. Exactly. In terms of candidates, you know, I, I watched, uh, there was a guy, uh, a Congressman Steve, something on Bill Maher this last show. He's a real up-and-comer also. But I did want to mention on, on the Aurora Ted Cruz election, I'm absolutely convinced that that was a fraudulent election. You know, we heard reports from voters saying that they caught their vote for Aurora being changed to Cruz and they had to redo it to make sure it was accurate. Right. Isn't there any kind of way that we can investigate that after the fact especially maybe by survey, surveying the voters 
for O'Rourke or, or whoever voted for who to determine to what extent that actually occurred, and if so, prosecute the heck out of these. Well, there, there, actually, there are numerous ways that it can be investigated, and most of these machines maintain what are called ballot images. Mimi Kennedy has been on this program talking about this. They're all designed to maintain ballot images. The problem is the investigation would have to be started by the state attorney general's office, and the state AG's office, like the governor's office, is controlled by a Republican. And these things work to the benefit of the Republicans. And so they're not going to be saying, hey, let's start investigating ourselves, you know, basically is what's going on. Nationwide, in red states, nationwide, what you have are rigged elections between, between voting, voter ID laws that are highly restrictive, that make it easier for basically middle class and upper income people to vote and harder for poor people, older people and younger people to vote. The purges of the polls. I mean, there's just there's a, a bunch of stuff going on here. Tyrone in New York City. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Hey, Tom, how's it going? Good. What's on your mind? I think that it's a bipartisan effort to maintain white supremacy in this country and keep the underclass, permanent underclass. Reagan, when Nixon, Johnson knew what Rick Nixon was doing. Um, Carter knew what Reagan was doing. And Obama knew what Trump was doing. And I think because they didn't be known what was going on, because Nine times out of ten, one or two of them would have been knocked out of the race because of what they were doing, the yeah. treasonous acts that was being taken place in this country. Yeah. And I'm like, there's no way that the Democratic Party don't understand what's going on in this country and can't do anything against, you know, this, this tortoise and hare type races that we're running where we know that the turtle is cheating. Right. And we keep racing them the same stupid way. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Tyrone. But I'd like to go back to your comment about the permanent underclass. I was talking about my dad earlier, you know, working in a tool and die shop and making a good living, you know, that, that he could support a family and raise four boys on. And there was a permanent underclass at that time that got virtually no coverage in the mainstream press. And that was mostly African-Americans with some Hispanics and other minority groups and certainly Native Americans, but principally African-Americans. That had been the permanent underclass ever since, you know, it's a vestige of slavery, essentially. And what has happened now since Reaganomics has come into place is that white people are being thrown into the underclass. So now, all of a sudden, the mainstream media, the press, the, the electronic media and whatnot, uh, which is largely owned, controlled, maintained and run by white people, um, is starting to look around going, oh, we got a problem now. And, you know, uh, black people have known about this for a long, long time. And my hope is that if now that this is a white issue as well as a black issue can get good progressive candidates in state and federal offices, that we can fix this in a way that doesn't just go back to being a black issue. It just goes away. You know, in other words, we deal with this in a way that helps all Americans. This is our chance. This is an enormous opportunity to do this. And frankly, this is what Lyndon Johnson was talking about in the late 60s with the Great Society, which helped in a big way raise the black middle class in the United States into something that was powerful and consequential and that cut poverty in this country in half. And that was disproportionately the poverty was cut in communities of color compared to white communities, but there were a lot of poor white communities, too. And, of course, Reagan came in and just started taking apart the great society. But I think your point about the permanent underclass is, like, one of the most important ones made all day. Tyrone, thank you for the call. It's, it's great to hear from you. Stephen in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Stephen, what's up? Hey, Tom. I uh, just want to agree. Robert Reich is spot on. 
and also your diagnosis and cure is spot on. Also, uh, Brian Steele, uh, you know, I was just back in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. back home there for a bit. He was Ryan's underboss, a right-hand man, and I was very disappointed. Is this the guy who beat Randy Bryce? Yeah, Randy Bryce. He lost. Can you tell us anything about what the issues were in that campaign? Why Randy Bryce didn't win? I think the big money came in and it helped bury him. It's a red district, somewhat too. It's tough. Yeah. Well, it elected Paul Ryan, so. Yeah, yeah. Part of Janesville down to Kenosha and Racine there. Um, But what I wanted to talk about too is, uh, I remember a few weeks ago I I called and I said Beto has the it factor, and he does. I'll tell you this: this is what we need in a candidate. We need someone who's going to run for Medicare for All, also on the climate and infrastructure. Yeah. And whether it be Bernie, who I also encouraged to run on your program back years ago, and or Beto, we've got to go progressive. And one other thing, too, to keep in mind, we can't worry about any claims of lack of experience because didn't they say something about the same like that to a fellow called Barack back in 08? Yeah, and to Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> and both of them became president of the United States. And yeah, Barack Obama had been, I think he was a one or two term state senator in Illinois. And then he was only two years into his United States Senate gig when he started running for president. And uh, so, yeah, absolutely. And Beto has served three terms in Congress. He knows his way around Washington, D.C., and he's certainly good on the issues. Robin in Oklahoma. Hey, Robin, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Oh, hi, Tom. I was wondering what these 1% people, the ones at the corporations and everything, do they believe that health care is a privilege or a right? Because they work people, but they do not get them the 40 hours, so they don't have to offer health care. That's right. You know, uh, Bernie has uh, offered a suggestion, a legislative suggestion, to solve this problem that I think is absolutely brilliant, and he's calling it the corporate freeloader tax. He says any corporation who pays people so poorly that they have to go on Medicaid or food stamps or Section 9 housing or any of those kind of things, any kind of government subsidies, uh, that company is going to have an automatic tax, don't know the amount, but uh, on their gross receipts. They're going to have to pay for the, you know, because they're freeloaders. And the privilege or right thing, uh, obviously, all these corporations think that health care is a privilege and they want to be in the position of it. In fact, uh, this piece from Julian Inglis at The Hill, this is from the Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigation. They found that this company, Kaleo, which has a drug called EVZIO, EVZIO, it is the drug that you use to treat opiate overdoses. And, you know, of course, we've got an explosion of opiate overdoses. This drug was selling for $575 a dose in 2014, and they have raised that price to $4,100 in 2017. It's a form of naloxone, which is used to, to treat overdoses. And naloxone probably costs somewhere on the order of 20 or 30 cents per dose to manufacture. Now you've got a couple of senators who are, who are yelling about this. In fact, a Republican, Rob Portman from Ohio, and Tom Carper, the Democrat from Delaware. You get it that these corporations, they don't care about health. They don't care about health care. They care about profits. And they view health care, and in this case, the opiate epidemic, as a way to simply increase profits. And people are dying as a result of this. And people you know, who won't be able to afford or, uh, or small towns that won't be able to afford or small police departments that won't be able to afford $4,000 a dose to carry naloxone with them when they're out in the field and they come across somebody who's experienced a drug overdose but has not yet died and they can bring them back from the dead essentially with this drug. 
this is just obscene. So I'm not, Robin, optimistic that any of these companies think that health care should be a right. Does that make sense? My husband just went through an operation and everything. And thank God it saved his life and everything. Now we owe a lot of money. Oh, my. So, yeah. yeah and, even with the Medicare, you know, and the Medicaid. Yeah. yeah. And Medicare doesn't even pay for glasses or dentures or anything. Yeah, and Bernie again, and I don't, I don't mean to sound like a, a booster for Bernie, but I'm not sure who else has been doing this. Bernie, for years, has been pushing really hard to include vision, dental, and hearing. These are all parts of your body. They have to do with your health as part of Medicare and Medicaid. And uh, certainly, if we get to a comprehensive Medicare for All program, that, that needs to be in there. Thanks a lot for the call, Robin. Rich in Indiana, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks so much. I'd like to remark on the permanent underclass, and that reminded me of something that I'd heard in this documentary last night on Sundance. It was the second half of Jonestown, Terror in the Jungle. Mm -hmm. The idea that was coming across in this was that, and this gets back to the idea of the underclass, there was this precariat, there was this immiseration that was going on that, People were going to the People's Temple and Jim Jones because of the economic hurt. And here I am in Indiana, and I wanted to remind folks that Jim Jones started in Indiana. That's and right, before he moved to is, California. There is something here. I've also decided not to use the term drinking the Kool-Aid anymore because of the horror that that event actually was, and yeah. it just seems so... Well, I think that um, phrase predated yeah. Jonestown. But, uh, Did it? Yeah, I think so, I, although I might be wrong, but I, but, but I think, okay. that, I think well, that phrase... I didn't, I didn't know that, but it would, it would be enough having watched this and understanding it reframed. Yeah, an awful lot. I think the vast majority of the people at Jonestown who died, who were fervent followers of Jim Jones, were African-American. Um, is he drawing on... And underclass, you know, were people joining up with him not just because they wanted to pray or not just because they thought he was a great spiritual leader, but because he was providing food, shelter, you know, the basic necessities of life that might not have been available to them? That wasn't made explicit. It was much more about the good feeling of being a part of a group that was for higher ideals and the value of family and the, oh, the larger that, that's a lot did, did you see the, the did you see the piece on the rajneesh no there's a series documentary louise and i watched it i believe on netflix about the whole rajneesh thing here in oregon back in the day and it was the same thing it was you know uh -huh. people just like you know hey we're a community and community is like really you know humans are wired for community exactly and, yeah. that was the idea they were saying and that this immiseration that people are experiencing is driving them to it yeah there you go there you go. Rich, I got to run. Thanks a lot for the call. Fascinating, fascinating topic, fascinating conversation. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes 
contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it. And you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. Our book today is Playing with Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics by Lawrence O'Donnell. The first chapter, Seizing the Moment, it starts in 1968. Richard Nixon was in a makeup chair when he met Roger Ailes. Maybe it was the makeup chair that set Ailes off. He was looking at the man who might have been president right now if he had just sat in the makeup chair CBS offered him in Chicago before the first televised presidential debate in American history. Nixon had ignored the network's makeup artist and used a drugstore product called Lazy Shave to cover his heavy 5 o'clock shadow. Nixon once said, I can shave within 30 seconds before I go on television and still have a beard. The day after the debate, the Chicago Daily News ran the headline, Was Nixon Sabotaged by TV Makeup Artist? Uh, Richard Daly, the all-powerful Democratic mayor of Chicago, said, My God, they've embalmed him even before he died. Nixon lost the election to John F. Kennedy by two-tenths of one percent of the vote, 49.7 percent to 49.5 percent. In an election that close, every mistake matters. A mistake like not getting the makeup right was the kind of thing that infuriated Roger Ailes. Now, seven years later, Ailes was meeting Nixon for the first time in the makeup room of The Mike Douglas Show. At age 26, Ailes looked like an assistant, but he was the boss, the executive producer of the show. And Nixon was once again a presidential candidate in what was beginning to look like a crowded field covering the 1968 Republican nomination. Ailes wanted Nixon to be president, and he knew the most powerful force blocking Nixon's path to the White House was television. To win the White House in the 1960s, you had to understand and respect the power of television. Ailes also knew that one of Nixon's potential rivals for the Republican nomination understood everything about television, Ronald Reagan, the former film and TV actor. Ailes wondered what Nixon had learned about TV since the makeup disaster of the 1960 campaign. Sitting in the makeup chair, Nixon offhandedly mentioned to Ailes how silly it felt to try to reach voters by appearing on an afternoon talk show like this one instead of a news show like Meet the Press. The Mike Douglas show is targeted at housewives and usually populated by B-list showbiz celebrities. In response, Ailes instantly rattled off a list of every bad move Nixon had ever made on TV, and it was a long list. 
Ailes was a teenager when he'd seen some of these things. This was not the way people talked to former Vice President Richard Milhouse Nixon. There was none of the deference Nixon had become accustomed to over the decades, and Nixon loved it. Nixon made Ailes an offer he couldn't refuse. Instead of trying to make Mike Douglas America's biggest afternoon TV star, make Richard Nixon America's next president. With Ailes on the media team, the Nixon campaign was ready to make the move from being the worst TV campaign to the best. We're going to build this whole campaign around television, Nixon told his media team. You boys just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Roger Ailes' career in Republican politics, which included every day he ran Fox News, turned out to be longer than Richard Nixon's. Ailes became more influential in Republican politics than Nixon ever was. We have reason to wonder who would be president today if Richard Nixon had not provoked Roger Ailes in the Mike Douglas Show makeup room. Such are the seeds that were planted in American politics in the 1968 presidential campaign. Run Bobby Run is the subhead for the next part of this. Bobby was a natural on television. In 1967, he was the only potential presidential candidate who could charm a TV audience just by being himself. All he needed was his smile. Bobby was the Elvis of American politics, the only politician who didn't need a last name to identify him. But his last name was everything. It was Bobby Kennedy's last name that made every potential candidate fear him. As the field of candidates began to take shape in 1967, every campaign calculation depended on Bobby, even when he showed no signs of wanting to run, even when he told people he wasn't going to run. President Lyndon Baines Johnson feared Bobby to the point of obsession. Johnson thought Bobby was the only one who could do the unthinkable, challenge the incumbent president's grip on the Democratic nomination. Johnson was sure that Bobby was the only Democrat who might dare run against him. He was wrong. Nixon feared Bobby, too, as did every Republican planning a campaign. Nixon knew exactly what to fear. He had lost to a Kennedy before. Losing to a Kennedy meant losing to the Kennedy political machine, and it meant losing it to the Kennedy style. A political machine can be beaten by a better political machine, though Nixon had never seen a better political machine than the Kennedys. Kennedy's style was something else. Nixon knew there was nothing Ailes could do for his image that could compete with Kennedy's style. Nixon couldn't change his sharply receding hairline. At 54, he was too old to do anything but tamp down his short, dark hair as flat as possible on his head. Bobby's hair had grown longer every year of the 1960s. Now at 42, he had the shaggiest hair in the United States Senate. His little brother Ted was the only other senator with a full head of hair. Bobby's hair was beginning to grow over his ears, rock musician length for the Senate then. And everywhere Bobby spoke outside the Senate chamber, he was treated like a rock star. That's what Nixon and Johnson feared most about Bobby, the way the crowds responded to him. They'd never seen anything like it in politics. Nixon and Johnson were both old enough to remember the first time anyone saw fans screaming and swooning for Frank Sinatra in the 1940s before, during, and after every song Sinatra sang. America saw an even more intense version of that fan reaction when the Beatles landed in the United States in 1964. And now Nixon and Johnson saw a version of it happening to Bobby. Everywhere Bobby went, crowds worked themselves into frenzies. When he spoke, he didn't sound like any senator they'd heard before. His voice wasn't stiff and self-conscious. The book Playing With Fire by Lawrence O'Donnell.
I've never endorsed a weight loss product, but that was before my brilliant wife, Louise, had such a great experience with Ridgizone. So good that she shared it with my producer, Sean. Sean, in your own words, talk about what you love most about Ridgizone. I've been frustrated for years, struggling with yo-yo dieting. I was really excited when I saw the results Louise had with Ridgizone. She looks amazing. I also like the fact that Ridgizone is based on university research that found a molecule that eases appetite and cravings so you eat less. Plus, Ridgizone is an FDA-accepted product designed to boost levels of that molecule along with your metabolism so you stop craving the wrong foods and burn calories faster. I'm excited to get my appetite and cravings under control so I can lose weight before the holidays. Stay tuned. Amen. Thanks, Sean. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription Ridgizone. While supplies last, use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off plus free shipping. Go to tryridyuzone.com. That's tryridyuzone.com. Tryridyuzone.com. John Harbin here with you. You are listening to the number one progressive radio show in the United States. And on the air with us is Congressman Mark Pocan. I actually retweeted this this morning. Uh, somebody had tweeted a comment that said, crucifixion is a terrible way to die. And it's really a shame that that had to happen to Jesus. But 30 pieces of silver. I mean, you know, come on, got to take this stuff seriously. So, or words to that effect. In other words, money is more important than a person's life. And I retweeted that with a comment saying that Donald Trump has betrayed the principles of the Enlightenment, John Locke, even Burke, on which, uh, you know, the conservative, on which this republic was founded and uh, literally betrayed the principles by saying that we will put money over the life of a journalist and an American resident. And in my retweet, I said, therefore, I think he needs to be impeached. But it wasn't so much a, a call for impeachment. It's just the shock and horror of the president of the United States saying that if another country does business with us, and they're not going to take their business someplace else. Their entire military is American-made stuff. They can't buy Russian-made stuff and just plug in spare parts or Chinese-made stuff. They have to buy it from us. We have all the leverage. They have none of the leverage. And he just, I, I just, I, I, excuse me, my head is exploding. We, Congressman, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, if you're looking for uh, a sign of the immorality of this uh, president, this administration, nothing uh, can really put the exclamation point on that immorality than uh, what he's done in the last couple days uh, over two parts of the, the Saudi uh, issue. One, uh, the killing of a permanent U.S. resident, a, a journalist. The CIA, our own intelligence agencies, uh, have told us the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia directed the killing. And then secondly, uh, there's a Saudi-led war against the people in Yemen, uh, of which uh, 14 million people are on the verge, uh, half the country's population on the verge of famine. Um, you know, they're bombing and blocking uh, the, the main port where the food, fuel, and medicine come in that affects 70% of the people in the country. And for the president's response to simply be, you know, hey, they're doing business with us, and then today hey, gas is going down, uh, thanking them, it it's just shows the immorality of Donald Trump. I mean, And they had nothing to do with the price of gas going down. That's I mostly know. American fracking. And, and, and we're talking about a country that's got a population the size of the state of California, more or less. 
and half that country is on the verge of famine because right. of, I think, an illegal war, certainly yeah. immoral war, being waged against them by Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia with the help of the United States using exclusively American munitions, including apparently phosphorus and maybe even cluster bombs, things that are banned by international conventions, although for some reason we are still making this stuff and selling it to people around the world. Do yeah, I have all that right, by the way? Yeah, yeah, no, you do, and you know, we're aiding in the targeting and the logistics, and we were refueling in this, which is making us complicit in a part of this, which is why we wanted to go into the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, that says Congress has to have a say if we're going to be involved in a war. And we had a privileged resolution that Ro Khanna, myself, Thomas Massey, a Republican, uh, Walter Jones, a Republican, in the House, on the Senate side, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, Chris Murphy, and Mike Lee, again, bipartisan coalition, trying Republican to get done. Also. Yeah, another yeah, a Republican in the Senate as well. And uh, our problem was Paul Ryan, who also won't stand up uh, to the Saudi money, deprivileged it through a backdoor uh, arcane procedural motion uh, while we were trying to have a bill that was delisting uh, gray wolves as an endangered species. The rule uh, took away the privilege ability, the ability for Congress to have a say. So um, the Senate is taking it up next week. Uh, we think they may have the votes this time. If they do, we're ready to reintroduce it on the House side. But that's what's going on. Uh, they're also directing the killing of uh, journalists uh, that they don't agree with. And our president is uh, like, hey, this is, you know, it was Jared's BFF, but I guess it's also mine. And that's not a proper response. It's an immoral response from this president. The one thing that looks to me like what's really going on here, but I'm not seeing in any of the press. So maybe this is just me being a conspiracy nut. My recollection I had intended to do a little research on this, and I just haven't gotten the time. It's been a nutsy week. But my recollection is that when Jared's building, 666 Fifth Avenue, uh, was a, a billion and a half dollars underwater and he couldn't make his, his debt payments, that he went to the United Arab Emirates and got a pile of money, a half a billion or a billion dollars from them, and that saved his butt. And their BFFs with the Crown Prince Salman, MBS, in Saudi Arabia. And it seems to me like what Donald Trump is doing is protecting his son-in-law's financial interests, not America's financial interests. He's, he's lying through his teeth that the Saudis can go somewhere else and buy their weapons. Does I any of this make any sense it, to you? Yeah, I would even take it a little further. I think this is about Donald Trump's personal financial interest. So don't forget, he's sold a floor previously uh, of a Trump Tower to uh, the Saudis. He sold a yacht to the, the, the Saudis. He's had other business dealings with Saudis. But I think everything, just about everything Donald Trump does is about future profit for him. So when he's not president anymore, instead of going around the country and doing uh, things to make the country even stronger and better, uh, he's going to go cash out to the countries uh, like Russia and Saudi Arabia uh, and maybe North Korea, uh, wherever he's uh, let some of these despots uh, have a foothold when they never should for their actions. So I actually think that Donald Trump does very little that's not about Donald Trump. Right. And what he cares about the most is his pocketbook. And uh, I, I tr totally think that's what's really going on. That's that's breathtaking. Okay, let's pick up some phone calls here. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, yes, hello, Tom and Congressman Pocan. I want to talk about the election for House Speaker of Nancy Pelosi. I feel that progressives should not give Nancy Pelosi a free pass because as somebody who grew up in the beginning of the Obama administration, I remember 
2009 and 2010. And I remember the legislative failures of Nancy Pelosi. And we're living with the consequences, namely with her. She didn't pass a bill that abolished the Electoral College. She didn't expand the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. She didn't vote for single payer health care bill that was passed. We didn't have the. Jared, you're not you're not identifying any actual serious legislation here. You're, You're going through a fantasy list. It's not a fantasy list. You could easily have any all these bills could have been passed. By Nancy Pelosi. Okay, so who do you want to have instead of Pelosi, Jared? If you look at the people who are trying to bring her down, they all vote with Donald Trump more than most of the other Democrats. This is a right-wing effort to bring down Nancy Pelosi. But anyhow, let's let's let Congressman Pocan speak to this. Sure. Um, So, you know, first of all, Jared, I would say there's no one running against uh, Nancy Pelosi right now. So when you have a one person in a race, um, one person will be the victor. I think that's a, a, the easiest way to say it. I will say that uh, Pramila Jayapal, who will be incoming as the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus with me after next week, uh, she and I had a meeting with Nancy Pelosi, and it was a very good meeting. Uh, we asked for things like proportional representation on the exclusive committees, the toughest committees, um, sort of to get on, especially financial services and ways and means that were way underrepresented. And uh, we got some commitments to get more progressive members on that. What that means is uh, you have more progressives asking questions uh, in hearings, uh, introducing pieces of legislation, making amendments to bills that are going to get to the floor on major um, issue areas. So appropriations, uh, energy and commerce, ways and means, uh, and financial services. And then we also asked on the Intelligence Committee because we only have one member on there. So I I think, you know, we were very well responded to. She agreed to it. Uh, We put out a release to that effect. I know national groups like Indivisible and Move On uh, were supportive of that. Now we're going to you know, do our best to hold uh, leadership to uh, those progressive standards now that we've laid that uh, kind of line in the sand. And I, I'm, you know, right now, uh, my job as a progressive caucus co-chair is to make sure we hold leadership to progressive ideals and right. we have to then do the work through our members. I, I, you know, it was great having breakfast with you and Pramila Jayapal and a few other folks on Thursday morning. I was at a dinner Friday night that Nancy Pelosi spoke at, and she talked about the need for health care for all, but she didn't talk about Medicare for all. Do you know where she stands on that? No, not exactly, because I think part of what you know, she has to navigate, if she, she indeed is going to be the speaker, is where all of our caucus is. You know, right. We know that we had about 120 members of our caucus on a Medicare for all bill, but you need 218 votes to pass something in Congress. So a lot of what I understand is our job is to make sure members of Congress understand what their constituents want. We know from that Reuters poll, 70% of the people in the country support Medicare for All, including 52% of Republicans. But some of our work is to convince them of what their constituents actually want. Yeah. And I think basically one of the people who didn't want her just flipped after he said that she said she would uh, work with him to try to get a, uh, if you're 50 years old or over, a Medicare buy-in. Am I remembering that right? I didn't see that story. I don't know. Okay. I think it was in the Washington Post. Bart in Bellevue, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I'm trying to get my head around this whole impeachment deal. If, in fact, uh, the Trump guy is impeached, then Mike Pence, I assume, would take over. But yet, at the same time, Mike Pence has been complicit with everything that Trump has done. So how can you uh, impeach Trump without impeaching the tandem guy with him, Mike Pence? And if that has happened, then, of course, you know who takes over as president, Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, Bart, when we talk about impeachment, we know there's a few steps that have to happen, including getting through a Republican Senate. So 
I think the best way for me when I try to talk about it is we want to make sure the Mueller investigation is allowed to, to finish. Uh, there was a four-year investigation on Benghazi with zero indictments, two years on Hillary's emails, zero indictments, 18 months now on potential collusion, 35-plus indictments, and we're having a, a productive result, and we want to make sure it finishes. And we're very worried that the president's going to do something to make it so that it can't finish. So I think the most important thing to be focused on at this moment is to make sure that the Mueller investigation is allowed to continue, because should information come out of that, that will be far stronger to see any votes that could happen after that and protect the Mueller investigation, because that's going to be our single best way to get any conclusion. Oh, and that's how they went after Nixon. I mean, it was Archibald Cox and those guys. Celia in Standish, Michigan, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, my question is about the so-called, and I hate to say his name because he's a convicted sex violator, but anyway, Hastert rule. And I feel like bipartisanship when Republicans are in control is impossible in that um, maybe we need to bring what prevents bipartisanship under Republican control more to light. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, Celia, you bring up probably two-thirds of the problem that this Congress has had since about 2010 as they follow a rule called um, the Hastert Rule, named after former Speaker Denny Hastert, as you pointed out now, former prison inmate Denny Hastert, which said originally you needed a majority of the caucus in the Republican side, this is their rule, to put something on the floor. And eventually it evolved to you needed 218 people in their caucus, which when you have a 40-person Tea Party, that's enough. They had power to veto anything getting to the floor, which is why Congress has been so completely dysfunctional since at least 2010. The very good news is Democrats don't have a Hastert rule, so we're not going to have to worry about that. But that shows the problem that we really had, the reason we couldn't pass appropriation bills, why the only thing they could really get done this session was a tax break for the donors, the wealthiest, the members of Mar-a-Lago. That is the only thing they could actually agree to, and the rest has been a dismal failure. We're not going to have that problem. You know, in fact, I hope Nancy will put things on the floor that even may not pass sometimes. But we want to be able to have votes to try to help organize and show the public where you could go should you have more Democrats in office. So we don't have that as a rule. It's a good news. That's, a, that's very good news. Dave, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, hey, I appreciate you taking my call. Thank you. I have one question or, or comment about on our opening remarks about the Saudi journalists, I, I definitely understand and agree with what y'all were saying about it being evil, and Trump's response to it was clearly stupid. He knew the whole time that the journalists had been called out. Dave, called to your point, we're, we're getting close to a break here. You're, you're, you're uh, okay, your yeah. Uh, my, my question is, though, why are we just now getting so upset about the Saudis? I mean, they've had so many human rights violations. Gay rights, I think, it, what was it, last year with the Pakistan transgenders? You know, they tortured yeah. them to death. Women's rights. What? what? Yeah. Why has it taken so long? That's a great question. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for that point. In fact, I would argue, as someone who's been working on the resolution around trying to get us out of being involved in Yemen for the last year, uh, it kind of took this killing to put this on the corporate media radar screen so that we're actually talking about it. And then for the president to be so outrageous uh, allows us to now educate people about what else Saudi's been involved in. And you're right, I had a, a Saudi Arabian resident who now lives here sharing some stories with me just last night here in Wisconsin. So absolutely many reasons we should be concerned. 
but now is the time to act. And if instead you act like the president and ignore it and then thank them for gas prices going down, uh, you're in completely the wrong direction, both uh, for morality and for what really is about putting America first. Yeah, like you said, he's looking at his own financial future and Saudi Arabia will play a role in that, which is probably why he went there first, right? Absolutely, yeah. Every other president goes to Canada. He went to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, there you go. Imagine the panic that swept over this dad. He was working late when he got an alert on his smartphone. His Blink motion-activated security camera picked up something. He opens the Blink app and views a video clip of a man peering through his kitchen window. He calls 911 and alerts his wife. Preventing situations like this is what Blink is all about. The point of having a home security system is to help alert you before some creep breaks into your home, not after. Blink motion-activated HD cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on batteries that last up to two years. And Blink's live feed option lets you monitor what's happening at home anytime, anywhere from your smartphone. No contracts, no subscriptions, and Blink even works with Alexa. Here's the deal. Get your Blink camera system starting at less than $100. No contracts or subscriptions. Visit BlinkProtect.com Tom, T-H-O-M, for details. BlinkProtect.com Tom, T-H-O-M. BlinkProtect.com Tom. Blink is an Amazon company. And John in Auburn, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello, Tom. Hello, Congressman Pocan. First, I want to thank you both for all you do, uh, the both of you do, you are truly making a positive difference in our country. Thank you. Um, uh, I would like to ask the Congressman uh, what he, he thinks that the Democratic Congress can do about our illegitimately, unconstitutionally appointed Attorney General Whitaker, and how we can fight back against this kind of appointment um, through the House of Representatives. Yeah, John, uh, great question and uh, great issue, right? I mean, we're watching right now what I think may be his own implosion anyway. I've already heard the president say something that looked like he was starting to distance himself from him. His being Trump's or his being Whitaker's? Uh, Whitaker's. I mean, the fact that, you know, now there's this odd nonprofit that he made a lot of money from that never did anything. I mean, I just see the Whitaker brand going down right now, and I've watched the president, at least in one case, distance himself a bit from Whitaker. So, you know, Donald Trump clearly is trying to go after the investigation, but he is doing it still pretty ineptly. I think he's going to continue to try to. But one of the great things of having the majority is we're going to be able to do oversight in a number of different ways. And as much as we're moving policy forward, part of our job is oversight. And we'll be able to expose a lot of things that didn't happen for the last two years. So keep attuned to Tom's program. We'll give you advice when things are happening. But right now, I kind of feel like it might be imploding on its own. There you go. Don't touch that dial. Jim in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Jim, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, Congressman, I start talk to you. To concur with what I saw with the Milwaukee Police Department, it was absolutely incredible how they responded to the average person, particularly with the black majority in that city, and it was incredible. So just the word to say that you're on the right track, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Okay. George in Chicago. George, you're on the air with Congressman Bokin. Both of you are two of my heroes. You're doing great work for the country. The decision that Trump made, which has already been overturned by federal court to limit asylum seekers to ports of entry, struck me as just another one of his poorly thought out blunderbuss approaches, just reactionary approaches to what he perceives as problems he has to address. I wonder if the two of you are aware that there's always been a kind of special exemption for Cuban refugees trying to get into this country. It didn't matter where they landed as long as they got 
two feet on dry land, they had to be allowed to stay. Whereas people who were trying to get in from, say, Haiti, if they made it all the way into the country, they could be picked up and deported instantaneously. There's a piece on the front page of the New York Times right now about Haitian refugees being deported under Trump. Yeah. In addition, there's a number of elite, luxurious private hospitals on the West Coast where Asians send their women who are pregnant a few months before they're due, uh, particularly, I guess this is the case with South Koreans, so that the children can be born in the United States and thus get a U.S. citizenship and become dual citizens. And apparently that's a benefit in South Korea because it gives you standing not to be in the military. And I was just wondering if Trump and his people are so mentally disorganized that they forgot about these two things when they did this blanket policy. Yeah, these exceptions. And, and I'd like to add the, to that question, George, if I may. George suggested that Trump's saying that immigrants, refugees rather, can only come in through ports of entry, which was overturned by the courts, was a blunder. I think it was a number one shout out to the white racists saying, see, I'm still doing this stuff to try to keep brown people out of the country. And number two, a PR stunt to grab the news cycle for another day, because literally every day he's got to be at the top of the news or he's not a happy man. What do you think, Congress? <laughs> Tom, once again, I completely agree with you. You know, George, uh, your assumption is that he actually thinks about the policy. He doesn't. Donald Trump is a reality show star first and a president second, and maybe even president third after a businessman second. But he loves ratings. He loves to get the attention. He needs it as a narcissist that he clearly is. He needs that. So, one, he loves when he has his rallies and his fans love the racist stuff that he spews. Uh, and in this case, he wasn't talking about complicated policy around actual asylum or anything else. I mean, when he did the child family separation, they had no idea what to do. That's why it was such a mess, because he just decrees things in that racist tone. So I, I agree. This is for his base. This is for attention. Uh, this is because he still thinks about ratings uh, rather than policy. And until he's gone, we're all going to be dealing with that. Amen. Gretchen in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I read in the BBC this morning that 85,000 Yemeni children have died in this war in Yemen that we are supporting, and which is basically a proxy war with Iran. And I'm wondering if at some point the uh, Congress is planning on cutting off funding to this and at least take a pause to find out what's going on, because we seem to be just dumping billions and billions of American dollars into a war machine that is killing children. Thank you for your response. Yeah, Gretchen, and that's exactly what Ro Khanna from California and I uh, kind of took on the leadership with in the House. On the Democratic side, we brought in some Republican colleagues, Thomas Massey and Walter Jones, and we had a privileged resolution to try to force a vote from Congress because Congress has to have a say according to the Constitution, and Paul Ryan deprivileged it through a backdoor kind of arcane procedural motion on delisting gray wolves and uh, took away our ability to have a vote. The Senate operates differently. They're taking a vote up next week that Bernie Sanders, Chris Murphy, and Mike Lee, a Republican, have been working on. Uh, we're ready to reintroduce it. But the good news is we have a lot of Democratic leadership on this. And this week, Nancy Pelosi herself signed on to it. So Steny Hoyer, uh, Elliot Engel, um, M. Smith, a lot of folks in key places are with us on this. And I think we're finally going to get a vote. Once we don't provide support, I truly believe you'll be able to stop much of the blocking of the port, blocking of the medicine, food, and fuel that's happening to Yemen, and you'll be able to stop the starvation. 
Tony in Las Lunas, New Mexico. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. This is Tony. Yeah, I just wanted to ask Congressman Pocan about gun control and what the party is looking to do if we're looking at banning assault weapons. Yeah, Tony, so I definitely we will uh, be addressing gun control. The, one of the most depressing parts of my job for the last six years has been after every mass shooting, we have a moment of silence and no moment of action under the Republicans. And it just takes your guts and tears them out every time something happens and we don't act. And I think you know, we took the floor of Congress one time, the Democrats, and we put out some of the issues we'd like to do, uh, universal background checks, get rid of the loopholes that exist. Uh, there are things we can specifically go after, the bump stocks, et cetera. I think you'll see all that happen. Stay tuned. Help us get those things done. Be willing to reach out to your members of Congress. Many of those issues have 85, 90 percent public support. They're absolutely no-brainers. If we don't do them, we don't deserve to be in charge. What, in your mind, are the top things over the next week that people, if they're going to be calling their members of Congress or engaging in political activism, where we should be focusing our attention? Yeah, I think we have to watch. We have three weeks of lame duck session at least, but three weeks that are calendared we're going into. Um, the wall funding is one of the big issues, uh, making sure that we don't pour money down a hole for something we don't need. And um, I, there is a rule that, that I'm concerned about on the Democratic side that would say we can't raise taxes on some percent of people were trying to, you the know, bottom 80 percent, I think. Yeah. But, you know, and we're trying this is to a way to block Medicare for all, isn't it? Well, no, what's happening is uh, because Republicans had a rule that they violated because they raised taxes on many people with their tax cut bill. Um, and no one brings that up. And we need to bring that up. So they already violated their own rule. Feel like we have to have a similar rule or people go after us. I think it's, it's silliness. But more importantly, let's get it right and not just something. Yeah. Amen. Well, I'm glad to hear that it's the, the, the explanation is more benign. I, I thought that maybe that had been a compromise between Nancy Pelosi and some of the conservatives. No, it's, it's more of a lack of messaging. Yeah. Issue. That's, that's good to know. Patricia in Portage, Wisconsin. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, guys. Um, I, I'm a journalist for the Cap Times, and I'm concerned about the legislation that includes court stripping and taking our wolves back for annual killing and never getting them back to the Endangered Species Act again. What's going to happen when they go to the Senate, and can you remove that? Is it a rider? What can we do to protect our wolves? There's only 900 of them. We have, like, 3.3 million cattle, and right now 60% of mammals on Earth are livestock, 36% human, and only 4% wild. We, it's not getting enough attention, but I would like to know how to protect the wolves. Sure. Uh, Patricia, this is the vote that they, in the rule to have us take up the the bill, uh, stuck this deprivileging of the Yemen resolution. So that got attention, but uh, there wasn't as much attention on the bill. It passed the House. There's not a lot of time for it to pass the Senate. So unless there is some real priority making by Republican leadership in the Senate, I don't anticipate it'll happen. Even the author of the bill, I didn't actually see on the floor when I was on the floor debating against the rules. So I know you know if he even showed up. So it may just be something they put on to say that they passed and won't get through the Senate, but you got to keep your eyes on the Senate and maybe call Senators Baldwin and Johnson on it because I think we'll have a better idea what they could do to see if it could happen in the next few weeks. Okay. Charles in Prescott Valley, Arizona. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, what if in the near future Mueller's presents his findings and they come up to or exceed the level needed for impeachment and the Senate doesn't accept the evidence what then can be done? Is it something that can be reintroduced? Is there a specific strategy to uh, bring the case forward? 
Well, I think just, again, hypothetically, uh, if something came out of the Mueller investigation, both houses would have to take this out to have impeachment, and you're going to need Republican votes to do it. So I think uh, this would be where we would have grassroots organizing, it's all the great groups out there um, reaching out to folks that they talk to to make sure they're contacting their members of Congress to get them to do the right thing. But at this point, the protection we need, and I truly believe need to be focused on, is protecting the Mueller investigation, whether it be firing Mueller, whether it be putting a new attorney general in who's going to backdoor get rid of it. There's a lot of things they can do to try to bury this, and we have to be very vigilant in making sure it doesn't get buried. You know, it seems to me that there's all this conversation that Whitaker's in there to screw up the Mueller investigation. He could also just as easily be in there to be Donald Trump's mole, to come back and report back to Donald Trump every day what's going on. If that comes out that he has been doing that, is that a crime? Good question, Tom. I don't know that offhand. You know, this is all new territory, right? I yeah. mean, the last two years have been, people are going to write books for quite a while after this. But uh, again, my hope is just watching how this has been done, uh, somewhat ineptly, that this may be shorter lived and then we'll have the next problem with the Attorney General's office to deal with. Yeah. One wonders, you know, what other troglodyte Trump is going to pull out of his back pocket to replace Whitaker. But anyhow, troglodyte. There you go. You know, here at the Tom Hartman program, we have basically, we, we're creating basically three programs identically at the same time. We've got the normal commercial program where we sell advertising, and that goes on our commercial radio stations. They hear that, and that pays for most of our operation. We have our television program that is carried by Free Speech TV, and we do fundraisers for Free Speech TV, and a small amount of that money comes back to us, which helps us provide that show to Free Speech TV. So that stream has its own revenue stream in it. And then we also provide a nonprofit radio show with no commercials in it that's completely nonprofit compliant to our Pacifica affiliates, to the stations all over the country, nonprofit stations. We pay for that one because we don't charge them by your support at Patreon. And in exchange for that, over on Patreon, you can get the full three hour show, archives of the show, and special clips like this amazing clip that we just, we're just now putting up about six ways America is becoming, like a, uh, is becoming a third world country. Check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Wayne in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. If the United States loses the Saudi petrodollar, we'll probably go into a deep depression overnight. The agreement that we made with the Saudis, whereas they would only use our U.S. dollars to trade in oil. If the Saudis drop that, then we'll probably go into a depression overnight. Uh, that's why Trump believes the uh, prince is not guilty. And my second comment is, the media's been saying for months now that people are on the verge of starvation over in Yemen. They've been saying that for about six months now. They're not on the verge of starvation. They are starving right now as we speak. Thank you. So, Wayne, on the second one, I agree, 85,000 children have already died. So you're right. The problem is we're at the point of 14 million people, half of the population. So thank you for correcting that. The first part, I, I strongly disagree that the number that Donald Trump has put out there is pure fantasy. It's probably like Donald Trump's golf scores or um, number of mistresses, things that he lies about on a regular basis, because clearly... Politifact came out and called, gave it a pants on fire. It would not affect the U.S. economy in a significant way. If this were 1984, they have a much bigger player as a provider of oil. Uh, that's not true now. So Donald Trump, again, is looking out 
for Donald Trump. The sooner people realize that, the better off we'll all be. But, you know, I'm sure when Donald Trump eventually is either removed from office or leaves office, he will make a lot of money in Saudi Arabia and uh, likely Russia. Yeah. Charles in Miami, Florida, you're on the air with Congress of Pocan. Hey, how you doing today? Good afternoon, guys. Hey, Charles. Hey, Charles. I don't believe anything this administration says. Right-wing governments, especially in Latin America, coming to the rise, I think Mexico is a threat because they just voted in a left-wing Democratic sort, I think, um, president. And I think this caravan was also to bring pressure on that government because he promised to stand up to Trump. Yeah, Charles, I, I'm not sure if uh, as much thought was in Donald Trump's uh, head when he did that. I think, you know, he was done more again to the, uh, appeal to the racist base that he uh, loves having cheer him on. Carolyn in Hearn, Texas, you have a quick question for Congressman Pocan, please. I was uh, wondering why uh, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment isn't being used to punish states uh, for disenfranchising voters. Carolyn, I don't have a great uh, answer for you on that offhand. I can tell you one of the things to look forward is H.R. 1, the first bill introduced by the Democrats, is going to have electoral campaign finance and ethics reform. A big part of that is going after uh, the dropping of names uh, like we've seen in Georgia, a lot of the other measures that have happened in states. So we will be addressing it very early on. can't tell you specifically why that hasn't been used up to this point, but we're going to have a number of measures that I think people will be very happy we're putting forward to try to repair voting so that it does work for everyone. Democracy works for everyone. So in our last 30 seconds, thoughts on the future, on what we should be doing? Yeah, I think, you know, for next week, we're going to be a little bit immersed in our leadership elections, but it's the first of three weeks that they have left calendared to have a Republican House, Senate, and President. To me, that means danger, Will Robinson. We have to be ready for it. So people, please be vigilant. Listen to your program. Be ready to activate. Listen to the outside groups that send out email. We have a few weeks to make sure they can't do real damage before Democrats take charge. There you go. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Same here, Tom, and to all the listeners. Thank you very much. Congressman Mark Pocan, his website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at rep, as in representative, rep Mark Pocan. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You can find them online. And he also represents, of course, the 2nd District of Wisconsin. Marcy in Elgin, Texas. Hey, Marcy, what's on your mind today? Hi, I wanted to talk about mob. I'm so tired of hearing mob because the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. That's a mob. That's us. Yeah. That's us. That protects our right to be a mob. There was no mob activity going on. Nobody was armed. Nobody was shooting. You know? Well, let me ask the question. What was that in Charlottesville? Was that a mob? People that were armed with <laughs> Yeah, the tiki torch crowd, you know, I, that looked like a mob to me. What about the tea parties? I mean, you know, if this is how they're defining a mob, oh, people who are expressing they political came opinions. They came out there with guns. They yeah. came out there with guns. Oh, they so killed somebody in Charlottesville. They killed right. Heather Heyer. The First Amendment right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this whole thing of rebranding Democrats as a mob, this was a Richard Nixon strategy that he did after the 68 convention that helped him get elected in 68, rebranding those protesters as a mob. He did it again in 72 with the anti-Vietnam War protests. 
And now his acolyte, uh, Roger Stone, in all probability has told Donald Trump, you want to win? Start calling these people a mob. It worked for us back then. It'll work again. I don't think it's going to work, but we'll see. Marcy, thank you. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.